see here. Today's topic is going to be dev news. Uh, we're going to focus a bit on some AWS announcements. So let me just get things situated here. Get my screen up. I'm joined today by uh, Sujan Kapadia again. How you doing, Sujan? Doing well. How's it going? Uh, living the dream. Whatever dream that is, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'm here, darn it. Okay. All right, welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday. I'm your host, Ken Rimple. I'm joined by Sujan Kapadia, and we are here to talk about uh, developer news this week. Specifically, we have a thing that we want to cover around AWS. That's the kind of the, the meat of what we're talking about today. Um, and just a real quick recap uh, to, you know, if you stumble on this video, you can always get to it through our uh, Chariot Solutions uh, website, chariotsolutions.com. Uh, if you want to watch past episodes, you go to the resources blog page. Um, I'm sorry, read sources podcast page for that. And we are the, these check chat Tuesdays on uh, this one's for December 8th of 2020. Uh, and you can always get them there. You can also subscribe through iTunes or RSS. Um, you know, chariot is a, a software development company. We do, uh, work with a lot of open source technologies and tools, uh, you know, specifically full stack developers, cloud, uh, centric development. And we do a lot of things in. JavaScript front ends, mobile, and also data centric work. Um, and so, a couple things that are new on the pod uh, or on the website this week that I wanted to point out. We have a couple of 15 minutes with episodes. Uh, one of the first ones that I uh, did neglect to mention last week, I think, was our own Rod Beerish uh, had a talk called, um, let me see here, let me grab that. It's looking through the, the UX lens as a mobile developer. Uh, so, when Rod was working on uh, some golfing software, uh, we kind of turned the tables on him and said, hey, if you want to improve that, uh, we can have our user experience uh, folks take a look at that with you and help you redesign the scorecard app that you're doing. So this is an interesting, here's what a developer, uh, you know, goes through when they're having to think, maybe not for the first time, but at least for for something that they built, uh, kind of like the, the client, um, you know, who's working on the user experience. So that's a nice little 15 minutes with session. We also have, uh, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Let me just throw that in private chat. Okay, that's right, we have that anyway. We also have uh, another interesting one, which is a 15 minutes with uh, with uh, Leslie Richards, who's the general manager uh, of SEPTA. And so they're talking about, you know, how much data they deal with every day and what they're going through to, you know, deal with, uh, you know, alerts, dispatching, uh, traffic control systems and so on. So uh, that's an interesting one as well. Then we have um, Tracy Wilson-Rossman also did a blog post uh, around uh, questions to ask when building your data plan. Uh, we deal with a lot of uh, data-centric applications, you know, uh, big data, so to speak, and, you know, helping uh, people who do machine learning and other stuff uh, engineer their data. So uh, a little couple things, food, food for thought for building a data pipeline. That's one of the things we end up uh, doing a lot for our customers. So that's called five questions to ask when building your data plan. Uh, and then coming up tomorrow, uh, I have an event, um, build a cloud native web app web app in eight weeks. It's a little bit tongue in cheek because obviously it depends on your customer and what you're trying to do and what the scope is. But I just said, if you have eight weeks to get something done, you have four major requirements to work through. You've got a team of maybe three or four people. Here's how you might structure that project. Here are the concerns that come up. Here are the things that you have to nail early uh, and figure out. 
uh, and I focus this on a Docker-based experience for the developers and ultimately running in the, uh, the um, ECS Elastic Container Service, but you could apply it to Kubernetes or anything else as well. All right, so that's coming up tomorrow. It's free, it's noon to one Eastern Standard Time, and you can register right on our website. And the blog articles are at Resources Blog. The event is at Resources Events on ChariotSolutions.com. All right. Sujan, I want to bring something up that I find, um, let's call it kind of creepy, but also, you know, kind of what you'd expect a computer to do. Um, you know, people are doing all sorts of interesting things with AI. They're making uh, AI tools, uh, you know, write novels or poetry or a script. I don't know if you've seen any of those things. but yeah, they, they use things called transfer learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. Basically capture the style of a writer or an artist and apply that to different, you know, generate new types of art. You can usually tell that it's computer generated because it's just some of the choices they make are completely out of left field. So let's go in that vein. This is computer generated artwork. And I just picked one of the subjects. It's called humans. <laughs> so this is something I love this. So, someone put this out here. They're using these, these algorithms to paint, basically have the computer paint things. And um, they will only sell that piece once and then they remove it from the website. So it's like curated art by a person who doesn't exist, yeah. who's a computer. I looked through the site and my first thought is no, no offense to the site or the people that are doing whatever work is involved in training these and generating it. Is that way too expensive for AI generated? Oh, art totally art. agree. <laughs> I just think it's a weird concept in general. Like, you know, some of these pictures are just, there's something really, okay, Tiny Bob is a little scary to me, um, or Ogle Manly. Okay, but it's not just that, they do things like flowers. These, they're, you know, very impressionist looking flowers. So anyway, so I thought that was kind of humorous. Uh, Artaigallery.com. What is the holiday sale? <laughs> oh yeah, what is the holiday sale? Where is that? 30% off, order before December 11th for Christmas deliveries. We do not sponsor these people or they're not sponsoring us. Uh, but I just find it rather funny. Okay. Yeah. So um, have you been attending some of the uh, AWS reInvent sessions? Um, I can't say that I've actually been attending during the day at all. I've yeah. some stuff after work and I've uh, read some articles about recaps and things like that later on. Okay. Hey, someone just bought a painting. Um, <laughs> so a couple things, first of all, uh, there's, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of announcements. So I've, I've been creating content. So I have the same kind of challenge. I'm, you know, luckily they're putting the, the sessions up right away, which is kind of nice. Um, but there's a blog post, uh, that we'll link to, which is the AWS reInvent announcements. Um, and these look pretty up to date. Uh, but I just basically combed through these uh, because I hadn't really gotten a chance to, to look at them all. But that's a good place to start. Um, and they also uh, have an Amazon Poly voice thing. So if you're driving, you want to have it talk to you in some strange way. Did you know Amazon Poly breathes during pauses? Have you ever heard that? No. If you have a comma, you hear, I'm like, wait, that's not a computer. Don't do that. <laughs> but um, it's interesting. They, they even have like human breath in that. And I haven't heard that in any other uh, voice synthesis tool. But uh, they're using their own web service, Amazon Poly, to kind of read through this stuff. So what I have here, and we can kind of kick these around a little bit, are a few of the things I thought are most interesting uh, that recently came out from the AWS reInvent conference, which I think you can still jump on it right now. Yeah. Uh, it's free. It normally costs a boatload of money, and you have to fly there. 
Um, but it's free. They're giving it to anyone who wants to watch, and you can watch the sessions after they're recorded too. So if it's not in your time zone, you can watch them then. So it's a really good resource if you're an AWS developer to keep on, uh, on top of. First thing is, and I thought this was kind of nice, is um, you know one of the challenges with doing mobile application builds is you know there's all sorts of uh, solutions out there that people have tried for building in in you know sort of cloud friendly ways, but AWS really hasn't had that yet. So now they've actually purchased a whole bunch of Mac minis and installed them. And now you can start up EC2 Mac instances to build and test Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS, tvOS, and watchOS apps. Obviously in a simulator, uh, you know, rather physical hardware uh, from the app, but at least you can connect to that. Um, do you think this will scratch an itch for some of our mobile <clears throat> practice people? It's a good question. I think it could, especially when it comes to doing testing and testing different versions of things and kind of doing it in parallel. Mm -hmm. If you're doing stuff locally or, or, or in a data center, which I'm not a mobile developer, so I don't know how they test things in clusters or parallel right now, but I, I, I would assume that something like this will allow testing on all the various devices that are in the Apple universe now mm -hmm. um, in a more orchestrated fashion in parallel. This will help that. Yeah, it says here, uh, and this is the article from the AWS uh, blog, the Mac instances are powered by Mac mini hardware and the AWS Nitro system. So they must have uh, plugged uh, Nitro operating resources into it. Um, you can use Amazon EC2 Mac instances uh, and sign Xcode applications for the Apple platform. Um, they're eighth generation six core Intel Core i7s, coffee legs. So they're decently beefy running at 3.2 gigahertz. Um, and 32 gigs of memory, which is nice too. So they're, they're, they're pretty good. I ha uh, haven't checked on cost for these. It's probably in here somewhere. Um, I would assume that they're at some slight premium, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's the point is that uh, you will now be able to use uh, Mac minis in AWS Cloud, which I think is kind of cool. Into a Mac on the cloud now, which is it's like, wow. It makes my head hurt. I'm like, you can do that? Cool. All right. Um, okay. So next, this is like... So I've been on this trying to wrap my head around cloud versus, I'm sorry, container versus Lambda development and what, what best practices you could use um, for each, you know, and how to do things. So I'm working on some blog articles specifically around serverless uh, technologies with SAM for how do you unit test, how do you system test from the a desktop, you know, how do you run things like Dynamo and such like that locally. Uh, and so I have a blog post coming out for that. But in the middle of writing that, I saw this thing come up and I thought, wow, this is pretty slick. Um, AWS Lambda, now they run in their own you know, service uh, that, that they, they run Lambda from within, which is some virtual machine. Uh, they have now realized a container image for Lambda specifically directly from AWS. So I know you could get other ones like LambCI is one I've been using. Um, but this is uh, a container image for Lambdas. I really like the idea of standardized packaging for Lambdas. Um, just reading this article, it was easier for me to understand this than it is Lambdas on its own. Like, it's very clear to me, and we use Docker for a lot of other things. Like, okay, get this base image, put these things together, do whatever you need to in terms of dependencies, and then you put it out there. So. You know, I think that this is going to make sharing code and publishing things that other people can use as well and you can go off of their base images. Hopefully it explodes in terms of sharing and open source in the Lambda world. That would be a good thing, I think. Um, so one of the things I wanted to point out is I have seen this particular thing here. I wonder if I can find it. 
um, that before this existed, there's a person who's created a CI environment called Lamb CI. Uh, and why am I having a hard time dropping this in here? Hold on. First day with the new fingers here. <laughs> here, this is the one that I've seen before and I've been using uh, actually in the blog article. And now I'm literally gonna pop that out and use the AWS one instead. But that one is written by someone who takes the ABS Lambda environment and creates a Docker container around it. And it seems to be somewhat popular, um, 50 million pulls that would make it popular. So it looks like a lot of people are using this now. And it just seems to be a way that Amazon's getting back and kind of taking control back and saying, we can do this as well. And you should probably use our image. Uh, and they'll have different runtime uh, interfaces. Like there's uh, base images for Node and for Python for all the different platforms you're gonna use it on. So I have a question, would this, have any impact on cold startup time, positive or negative? Like at the end of the day, are Lambdas still Dockerized? Like are they running in containers anyway? And this actually makes that bootstrap process faster or does it having to pull an image, load it, et cetera, et cetera, does that increase it? I don't know the answer to that. I had thought, and I, I thought I read this somewhere that, that they used some variant of Fargate or something like that to run lambdas, but I'm probably 150% wrong. So the person we should ask about this is Keith at some point. We'll shoot that over to him and see what he thinks. Um, but yeah, I, I would think that it's probably going to be mimicking exactly what their their runtime containers are, uh, and you're going to get the same relative start times. But I I don't want to quote myself on that, so don't quote me. Anyway, an interesting thing to look at if you're doing lambda development now, it's even easier to create an instance of a lambda runtime that you can use. All right, uh, next thing. This is kind of interesting. We got uh, ECS, uh, they're doing some some stuff around the uh, Kubernetes service where they're open sourcing it. Um, so Amazon's EKS distro. Uh, this is now a distribution uh, of the Elastic Kubernetes service that you can then install on your own hardware, which seems really interesting to me. Like I know we have a person here that has I think he's got a bunch of Raspberry Pis in a cluster, and I know that one of our other developers did with Mac Minis. Um, but you know, you could build your own cluster and run it locally and save the fees to kind of experiment with Kubernetes a little bit. Um, not sure how useful that is to people day to day, but it's giving you an option also to potentially take that and put it on another cloud to be multi-cloud with Kubernetes as well. And that's one of the things, there's a blog article about this that I'm looking for here. Um, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, but but for ECS, they're doing something similar. And so for the ECS side, they're, they're also letting you run multi-cloud uh, as well. So I think they're realizing that people have other needs for their platform, and they may want to run it in their own iron, or they may want to run it in conjunction with a failover to another different service, and this is they're just reacting to that. So kind of interesting. All right. Here's another interesting thing I thought. They now have a public Elastic Container Registry. Where you can share your public Lambda images. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put your Lambdas up there. Yeah. Of course, they have to hook to other things, so that'll be fun. But <laughs> use environment variables, you know? Um, so yeah, so, so now there's a public Container Registry. Uh, and so uh, this now is, so ECRs were connected to your account. You could, uh, you know, publish images and they would be launched in the Kubernetes or in the uh, uh, ECS instances, the regular Dockerized instances, um, but they weren't public. And now this is basically the ability for you to publish uh, a public container 
Uh, and let me show you the gallery. So there's gallery.ecr.adws. So this is like their Maven repo, right? <laughs> or their Docker uh, config. So you can kind of look through and see all the things that are in here. And a lot of the typical uh, projects you would think are going to be there. Of course, Amazon Linux is going to be in there. Of course, Apache. Someone published that. Bitnami published it. It looks like a lot of the people who are players in the EC2 space are in there, right? Um, Apache 2 by Canonical. meant by Ubuntu. Which one do we use? I don't know. Um, but you can do this as well. So if you have something you want to publish, if you're working on an open source project and you want to be able to be easily launched from Amazon, uh, you could certainly publish it there. And then they could also, you know, I would assume people outside of Amazon on a regular Docker container could load yeah, these images. You don't need well. an account, an Amazon account to actually pull images from this. It's just a repo URL. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's an interesting thing. They're trying to get more public about their use of uh, Docker containers and such uh, for others to use. I'm going to switch back to Lambda again. What do you think of this, Sujin? So right now we have 100 milliseconds billing. We have had 100 milliseconds minimum billing for a Lambda. If a Lambda is super fast and gets out of your way, um, you know, it's doing a simple validation or something, it should take, you know, several milliseconds. So you're paying for all that extra access. Now, it takes a lot to actually ramp up to get a, a bill in a light, lightly used application. But if you're running applications that live on Lambda with tons and tons of calls every second or hour, this might make a difference. They're just make, they're recognizing they can now go down to the one millisecond granularity level for a Lambda. Yeah, I think this is a, a very compelling or cool for, for two reasons. One is kind of like the workloads you just mentioned. I can see there are a lot of IoT workloads with a lot of different sensors invoking lambdas and things that, that are sub 100 millisecond uh, runtime, mm -hmm. that could have huge uh, cost implications over time. And then the other thing is, I think this will get more and more people on the lambdas. So it's just another way to say, hey, use lambdas. So you're going to funnel more and more of, of workload onto Amazon lambdas. And the, back to the container, I mean, this is kind of all coming together, right? So back to the thing you mentioned earlier about containerizing lambdas they're really just saying hey take stuff that you already have you're already using container you already have code add some lambda related shims and if if it, if it matches the, the the model execution model for lambda it, they're making it easier and easier to move over to lambdas how i see all of this what you're talking about today yeah and i think a lot of web frameworks uh, work well like that so for example express.js you could have express serverless, right? You just kind of wrap it with a serverless uh, invoker and it launches and it kicks off the router and, you know, services something. Um, and if it's busy enough, it's going to stay alive, yeah. you know? It'd be interesting, which I don't think they do this. Maybe you were Keith, no, but I mean, I know their overall revenue for AWS is 40 billion. I don't know if they break that down or that's something they keep close to the vest, but it'd be interesting, like how much revenue is AWS generating from Lambda itself? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. That would be a good question to ask. I'm sure that's probably, well, I'm sure that's probably a great statement, right? Um, lots of provisos. I bet it's in the keynote. I'll bet Jassy mentioned it or someone else mentioned it at some point. So it'd be good to go back through that and see. Um, and yeah, it'll show you here. Like, so if you've got a uh, monthly request charges are un unchanged, if you had 60 million invocations, your monthly bill is going to be the same. Um, but the compute charges can be a lot cheaper. So if you had you know, something that was running at 28 milliseconds by default, you'd be paying about a hundred bucks for the number of uh, calls, 60 million invocations there. Um, and with one millisecond billing that could for a 28 millisecond call, you get it down to about a quarter. 
of that cost. So it, it can make difference over time. Yeah. yeah. Simple math, right? All right, cool. Um, here's the other one that I was, I was kind of referring to at first with the EKS stuff, ECS anywhere. They're doing some uh, interesting things. I'm, I'm, I have to wonder if when they're starting to do things like open source this uh, stuff, are they looking in long term at like handing it to somebody else or are they recognizing that they've got the best platform and they're like thinking they're the Apache of the cloud at this point? It's hard to tell. Um, so what they're saying here is in the last two years, I'll quote the second paragraph of the article here. In the last two years, customers sought more flexibility in where they could deploy containers using Amazon ECS then increasing number of use cases that require an application to run outside AWS regions and closer to their other services, wherever they may be located. Um, and so they've been doing things like setting up an AWS outposts where you can basically run stuff uh, in your network um, and, you know, dealing with some zone acceleration, speed acceleration. Uh, but, you know, they basically are announcing this thing allows customers to deploy native ECS tasks in any environment. What is that? What is the any environment? I think it's the same as we're talking about EKS. So the idea is you could install it in your data center, install oh. ECS anywhere and run your hardware there. You could take the same thing and put it in Azure and oh. run it there. Okay. So, the, okay. That would actually potentially obviate the need for EKS. Maybe. I mean, it's, basically there's the control plane is what they're saying. They're, they're letting you use the control plane in the console to go launch something somewhere else. That's one part of this, I think, um, which is interesting. It's called the data plane, I guess. Um, so, so anyway, let me see here. And my terminology is a little off. There's a blog post and this is someone's opinion on a cloud guru, which pretty popular tutorial site out there. Um, and, and their thought was, uh, it's the title is AWS is Forest, Forest Brazil. Um, AWS just went multi-cloud and it's only the beginning. Uh, and so, you know, the thought here that he's going down the road of anywhere could be Azure. Uh, they're certainly not saying that, for example, but I think they realize that it's better to be able to control workflow and workload in the tooling you've provided than have someone just go completely off and have two different stacks with two different control planes. Um, and so I guess they're recognizing that they can do that. Apparently in the keynote, there was a, uh, a big bunch of stuff on SQL server. Um, and so the, the, the point was like, you know, there, he's been beating up all the infrastructure of other resources. Uh, but at the same time, he then announces that, well, we can launch anywhere. Mm -hmm. We can launch our software in whatever you want, whether it's another cloud, whether it's a, a local server or whether it's in your data center, what have you. Uh, and they could be ECS managed. So this is kind of interesting. So it's worth reading that article, getting a feel for what he's saying. Um, so between that, the EKS uh, distro that you can run Kubernetes outside of their iron, the Lambda containers, right? Uh, and ECR public, there's a lot of opening up of some of this technology to make it available, A, to run locally or lo in your data centers to probably keep costs down for developers. This one use case I could totally see. You know, you can have your own cluster and just run it locally and then not worry about being billed. Um, and then when you go, you know, push into the cloud for, you know, QA and stuff like that, that's when you're going to incur some of those costs. But that's one area. And then just being able to be a little more open with other groups, that's kind of interesting. All right. Another big deal, uh, and this is something that Keith uh, singled out, is uh, that they now have strong read after write consistency in S3. It's huge. And, yeah, it is huge, isn't it? 
because it was eventually consistent. So you would send stuff up to S3 and then someone else reading, uh, you know, they would eventually get the update, but it could be milliseconds to seconds or whatever until it actually kind of lands there. But now the idea is you put something in there, it's consistently committed, so to speak, and now it's immediately available to anything else. Yeah, I mean, S3 is a big component of data pipelines now. And people use it for doing all sorts of stuff with EMR and Athena and Redshift. So the fact that it's now strong consistency and not eventual consistency means um, it, it simplifies the ability to move data from one to the other without having to do any sort of hacks that Keith had alluded to. Mm -hmm. like people using DynamoDB to keep track of what's been written, what's not right. in yet, and, and using that to guide the uh, pipelines or, or uh, ETL jobs now you don't have to really do any of that because what you get from S3 is going to be consistent. That's a really big deal. And it, by the way, it's not like some of the other things they've released in the years where they're like, it's a preview and it's coming eventually. They immediately had that turned on during the keynote. So yeah. they flipped the switch and it's just there. Yeah. Just yeah, fantastic. It's smarter and smarter with that, with this intelligent tiering um, of storage. It's, it's definitely becoming a no brainer more and more. Yeah, definitely. I also have another thing that uh, I thought was interesting. You know, there's always this um, this quest for more natural queries. Uh, you know, for example, you're using Siri or you're using uh, Google or whatever, and you're trying to get it to follow your rules. Uh, now, QuickSight, which is a business analysis tool, they've added the Q query tool, uh, and that's a natural language questions tool for this. So this could be really interesting if you're providing you know business querying of data for your customers and you want them to be able to not have to learn you know, some strange syntax. Yeah, I mean, so this excites me and scares me a lot at the same time. So <laughs> why it excites me is I want to see what they're doing under the hood to do the natural natural query language processing and, and turning that into a query or AST that can then turn into SQL and if any of that's open sourced or not, and I'll get to why that yeah. in a second. But um if they connect it through a voice interface, like Alexa or something, and you ask it a question and it can give you some information back that's not a chart, but like some right. statistics, it, that would be really cool. Um, what scares me is when things don't work or you get back something and you don't know, like, is that actually the right answer or not? But it doesn't get verified. Someone just asks it, looks at it, takes it, okay, here's my evidence. Here's, I'm, I'm going make, making decisions off of this you still need to like verify that the stuff coming out of it is what you expect it to be. Yeah. So they let you see the query and things like that, or if something goes wrong, like is it going to be more of a debugging nightmare for developers and things like that? But I, I think this stuff will just get better and better. You raise a good point because the context in your head might not be what you've actually given it to interpret. So you might be looking for something and specifically you asked a question that led it down a different path and then you've used that for some sort of decisions that you know might cost money or do something. So um, it, it is interesting, you're right, and there are some potential weird things to it. But uh, I use, um, locally yeah. to, to build management and financial dashboards. Yeah. I use an open source free product called Metabase. It's actually mm -hmm. enclosure. Um, and I run it locally, but you basically point to a database and it gives you a visual interface to build queries. And you can also drop down to SQL and it builds like pretty nice dashboard really fast. It's like very super intuitive, easy to build stuff fast. It'd be cool if any part of this was open sourced or if I could find something similar to this, 
to try to plug in the voice capability, natural language, sorry, the natural language capability of this into something like that would be pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it would be. Looking to see if they have anything about open source. I doubt it's open source, but anyway, that that it would be nice if it was, or if it under the hood is using some natural language processing open source tools, right. that'd be good to know. And you can use it with data sources from Redshift, RDS, Aurora, Athena, and S3, um, and some other stuff as well. So seems like an interesting angle. I've never used QuickSight, so I don't know, um, you know, what whether that like stacks up over the other ones that they they provide. But certainly, it's it's one of their BI tools, I guess. Okay. Um, another interesting thing, uh, Proton. I really have not spent enough time reading into this, but it looks like it could be important. Uh, it's a preview. Uh, a new service that helps you automate and manage infrastructure provisioning and code deployments for serverless and container. This is where my head started to melt. And container-based applications, like both. Um, so the idea is if you're building um, you know, microservices or you're building small Docker containers, uh, and you need to keep track of them and you want to build templates to roll them out. Mm -hmm. uh, this is like kind of a, a self-service portal, I think, with templates built into it. So I am going to plan on digging into this a little bit later. So qu question, mm -hmm. would you think, is this like SAM or serverless, but for like everything? It seems like it's, um, I don't know enough about it yet to know, to be honest. I, to me, it seems like what it is, is quickly launching tasks that are based on Docker containers of microservices or lambdas of microservices. Like it's the one stop place to kick off instances and say, run these over here on Fargate, um, for example. So it says, you know, it says here provides curated templates that follow AWS best practice of common use cases, such as web services running on Fargate or stream processing apps built on Lambda. So it looks interesting. Here's a web service, for example, notice it's all versioned. So that's pretty cool too. So this is a Fargate web service they're talking about. Um, and it looks like you've kind of got publication and deprecation flags and things like that. So it's kind of like a place to look up your microservices and figure what state they're in, deploy updates to them, um, you know, track them. And these templates probably roll them out, I would guess. Um, probably cloud formation templates is what I'm guessing. But anyway, looks like something to look at if you're going to be doing a lot of work with serverless, uh, you know, functions uh, and or small containers. They also say that uh, it's available, and as we talked about, all the new stuff comes in the U.S. East, right? <laughs> so U.S. East, uh, Virginia, Ohio, U.S. West, Asia Pacific, Tokyo, and Europe, Ireland, free of charge. You only pay for the underlying services and resources. So it's not like you have to pay extra for this. So it would be something interesting to take a look at, I think. Um, I threw this in here because I was hoping I would get someone who uh, is an Emacs person to, to, to tease because I don't use Emacs and I've always thought it's way too smart for me. <laughs> yeah, I, it's been many, many years since I've used it and I never became a power user and like a list wizard with it. I used it for once because the, the rest of the team was using it and then I found something better in my yeah. opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Vim person. I'm like every single thing I use, I have a Vim plugin. And I always, every three or four years, I'm like, I'm gonna learn Emacs. I must be stupid, you know? <laughs> I must not get it. And so I sit down and I'm like, I can't, my mental, process can't keep track of the new keystrokes because I've got Vim VI specifically burned into my brain. Yeah. Um, and every freaking editor I have, I've got a Vim plugin. And I, I think the best one, by the way, while we're talking about this stuff, Visual Studio Code's Vim plugin is fantastic. If you've ever used it. I it, have used it before. Uh -huh. It uses all the command line like EX uh, 
syntax too. So you can do colon WQ or you can do whatever, all the slash searches and stuff. It's all there. So anyway, cool. but yeah, if you're an Emacs person, if you're one of the people that, that pay a lot of attention to Emacs, they just had a whole bunch of stuff and it's all online. So rejoice. Here's another fun one while we're talking about just different things. Uh, uh, this this does crack me up. You know, we buy these faster and faster computers, and we keep putting more and more complex operating systems on them, right? And our and our applications are getting crazy. Um, but if you just look purely at the latency between when you press a key or when you click something and something happens, it's this is hilarious. This makes me laugh so hard. So check it out. So we can go. Uh, so let's see, where is it on here? Uh, latency milliseconds. So the Apple IIe had a 30 milliseconds latency. And I think he said in here, like you could detect 60 or 70 or 80 millisecond latency. Um, as a musician and a drummer, I could, I could vouch for if I hear something slightly out of, of time, it drives me crazy. Um, and if you're typing and you want quick response, a tenth of a second is going to be a little more noticeable than like what can't be perceived. It's going to start bothering you. But as we get into some more complex hardware now get the macbook pro 2014 100 millisecond latency when you click on something you get something done an mm -hmm. imac g4 is this like a controlled study they're all running the same exact workload or i don't know and this is what let's see here uh, as a rule i don't trust this kind of feeling so i carried around a high-speed camera and measured the response response latency of devices i've run into in the past past few months mm -hmm. so now i'm curious where do these lead now just a, a I'm just wondering what he means by response latency. Like, okay, there we go. Here we go. The tests are latency between the key press and the display of a character in the terminal. <laughs> so that's literally it. Open up the terminal or the basic screen from Commodore 64, press a key. So can you imagine like almost a quarter of a second latency for typing into something? That's nuts. You'll feel that. Yeah, that, you know? well, symbolics, I've never used this symbol. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a pro. Oh, that's a, like a, a mainframe terminal. I think is that what that is defunct computer. Oh, look at this. Uh, they acquired symbolics and privately held company acquired the assets, of the former company and continue to sell and maintain the open genera lisp system. Wow. Okay. okay. Scientists or something like that. Mathematics. Um, that's really, that's actually true. And there is that upward trend overall. Mm -hmm. I think we don't notice it just because we're so distracted and multitasking these days that it doesn't matter. <laughs> Unless you're in the terminal. Like, you know, I've been on computers where I'm in the terminal and I'm typing and, and it, I, I could barely stand using it because it's just so darn slow to render keystrokes and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're also, that's why I'm trying to under, I mean, maybe the, the point they're making is not the architecture, but all the stuff that runs between yeah. press and it getting displayed because there's all sorts of things going on in the shell now that mm -hmm. you've not been doing decades ago. Yep, 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 yep. It's just kind of, I thought this was kind of hilarious. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you have a really fast computer that does almost nothing without typing a whole listing in from a magazine, <laughs> or you can have a really powerful computer that's a little sluggish because it's, you know, got all these plugins in the current terminal. I mean, if you set up, like I use, oh, my ZSH. And I remember at one point for my Z shell, I added a few too many plugins and it was the same thing. I'm like typing things and saying, why does it take so long to do completion? It turns out I had one plugin turned on that like did a deep dive took forever when i hit tab and i removed it and suddenly i got good latency so don't don't add too much uh eye candy to your computer people slow it down that's what it's going to do but anyway i thought that was kind of fun all right uh let's see oh and this is for you Sujan. i i figured you would enjoy this um you know i by the way i just traded in my 2017 
Bolt for 2020 Bolt and ended up with the same payment. They're giving huge discounts, and I got leather seats and a great stereo and everything. So I'm really happy right now. Did it get you have it in possession now? What's that? You have the new car in possession? It's, yeah. yeah, it's downstairs. I'll show it oh, to wow. you. Yeah, you check it out. Um, but Sujan, I think this is your next car. You ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. Aptera announces a thousand mile range never charged. Now you can't it really can't be your own your next car because it's a two-seater plus pet. But you know, in your retirement, think about it in your retirement. It'll be five bucks by then. This thing's nuts. This looks like something out of like Blade Runner. Uh, so apparently they were doing a three wheeler and then it fell apart. Um, it turns yeah. out it's this they sold the company to someone else or someone else came in and then they took over and ousted the original guys. So it's just a name. Yeah. yeah well, no, now the original guys are back. Oh, okay. That's what it is. Okay, cool. They're over and they're doing what they wanted to do before. So you're familiar with these guys. A so, little. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're putting solar panels all over it. Right. So the whole top, the hood um, is solar panel riddled, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can run a thousand miles on a charge, which is insane. And it can charge up to 65, I think, or 45, 45 for the base model, I think, and maybe higher. Let me see the numbers in here somewhere. But the idea is you can get 40, 50 miles of charge a day if you leave it, leave it outside in the sun. I doubt this will ever come out. No, it's a concept. Well, they say it's going to be sold for 25 to 40K, I believe. Um, and they're taking pre-orders. Okay. So anyway, yeah, yeah, I had I didn't read deeply into it enough to see like is it safe? Does it have airbags and all that kind of stuff? But this picture right here scares scares the pants off me. You're driving along in a car that looks like it's connected by little tiny pipe cleaners. <laughs> what if one of those gets hit by something? It's like ding, and that'll be it. But I don't think that's anything to worry about. It's built in. It's built in hemp and uh plastic and other things that's it's a very trendy car as well i'm thinking of a cheech and chong movie with the van <laughs> i know that's what I was thinking when i saw it like you can smoke this thing yeah <laughs> um it has supposedly has a really fast charger uh and it says here at the bottom end the 250 mile car i guess you can pay more for the higher mileage can be completely charged in 30 minutes and the top thousand mile charge could take two hours which is pretty darn impressive for the thousand mile charge so even if these things come out, um, <laughs> I love Jalopnik because they're always honest. <laughs> yeah, I'll believe any of this when I see it. Exactly. But let's say that, you know, some of these things push the tech forward a little bit more by, you know, thinking through some stuff that other companies don't think. Yeah. That's why Tesla is so popular. They did things that other people wouldn't do. We need more companies in this space. We need more options. We need more competition. I think it's going to be a great thing. Like it's awesome. And I disclaimer, I own a Tesla. Yeah. That's why I'm teasing you with it. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm always amazed by what they've been doing, but we need, we need other people in this space. And we need to bring the, we ultimately need to bring the cost down to, to people because if we can get a really, really reasonably priced car that ends up on the used market at a really reasonable price and chargers are everywhere, which is the biggest problem with this yeah. is the charging networks. It's not like a gas station where you can find a charger. You have to go on maps and say, oh, look, in my area, there's three chargers. That's not useful. You know, three in the whole county, you know? By 2030, not factoring inflation in, I think by 2030, we'll have a 30 or sub 30 electric vehicle with a decent amount of range because I think battery technology and cost will come down enough. That's the largest component that'll allow manufacturers to build cars at that price. 
Yeah, it's going to take a while, and I think they need to build out the infrastructure. If they can get the charging networks going and they can get fast charging much, much more accessible, then I think that'll it'll be that most people will be in electric vehicles. All right, cool. So that's everything in the news this week. Uh, Sujan, thanks so much for being on the show with me. I really appreciate it. I enjoy having you as a co-host. Absolutely. Thank you. I love this. Cool. If you guys have any questions um, or you like the, the show, please put a comment up on the web, uh, up on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, you can find the playlist uh, for all of our tech chat Tuesdays and please put some stuff up there. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you also want to hit us on Twitter, we're at TechCast. All right. Thanks so much. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sue John. Take care. Take care.